0: We are in a series that we're calling Jesus Essentials, where we are looking at what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, One way of of kind of thinking about it is is Christians are known as believers. And so this series is exploring what do believers believe. (laughs) Uh, When we say here that Jesus is the center of our faith, These are the things that are in in the center of what we believe and trust to be true about God and the world and ourselves. And today, we're continuing by looking, kind of making a shift from things we believe about God, and now we're looking at things that we believe about humanity. And so the question, or the statement, or the belief that we're looking at this morning is the fact that as humans, we are valuable and something is wrong. Our experience as human beings teaches us that both of these things can be true at the same time. And we'll explore a little bit about how that is the case. But in order to get into this, I want you to think of the last time that you were lost. I mean, like, not kind of lost, like you took a wrong turn, but you kind of know how to get back on track. But I mean, like, legitimately lost. Like, I have no idea where I am. I don't know where the you are here point on the map is. Like, I don't know where I am. And as I was thinking about this, this week, I actually can't remember... Last time that I was legitimately lost. You see, I'm I'm old enough that I remember going to uh, AAA and getting maps before going on road trips. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh huh. Very cool. Some of you are like, I have no idea what you mean. So I'm also young enough (laughs) that when I moved to Seattle as a 20 year old, I had a GPS, and so I never had to you know, drive around aimlessly in a big city and figure out where to go. I was able to navigate um, from space. And, <clears throat> and so I, I, as I was thinking about this, I, I realized that, uh, you know, with, with technology and smartphones and GPS in our cars and all of that, it's, it's actually quite harder uh, to get lost these days, unless you don't use any of that and then, you know, you go analog and, and just get lost for the thrill of it, you know, just to feel alive and human again. But maybe to think about it another way is, when was the last time you lost something valuable to you? Not just the remote and the couch cushions or in the fridge, but like something, like maybe a, a ring or your phone, or, or something that is, was of important necessity to you, or value to you. And again, as I pondered this, I, I thought of little things here and there, but nothing that I was, you know, posting on telephone poles, like missing my, you know, beloved teddy bear that I sleep with every night, or I'm just, I don't. And if I did, I wouldn't lose it. <clears throat> but, I, you know, then I thought, well, it's, especially with technology and, you know, uh, Apple AirTags or Tiles or, or whatever, it is still harder to lose things. Like, if I lost my phone, I, I didn't know where it was, I could just, Oh, there it is. It's right over there. I can find it. And when it comes to the human condition, what Christians claim to be true is that humanity is of immeasurable and irreplaceable value to God. And that humanity has lost our way. That we have, it's not that in some way God has lost track of us, like we might potentially lose track of something valuable to us. But Because we have neglected our primary starting point, we begin from a place of lostness. And therefore, it is harder and more difficult for us as humans to get to where we are intended and created, Christians would argue, to go. The late USC philosopher Dallas Willard puts it like this. When we are lost to God, we are also lost to ourselves. We don't know where we are or how to get where we want to go. Many a driver is lost long before they know it. Though rarely before their spouse knows it. (laughs) (sighs) Who says philosophers aren't funny? They sincerely believe they know where they are, where they're going, and how to get there. But in fact, we do not. And we often find out too late. Disorientation to moral, personal, and divine reality, as well as to the physical dimensions of life, oftentimes leads us across lines that cannot be recrossed. So could the value of being lost in some way be lost on us in the modern world? in the world in which we have taken on assumptions and and, uh, stories about the world that say something like, we once were lost when we were following these ancient paths and stories that had to do with gods and things like that. But now in the modern world, We have things like technology and medicine and science and things like that, and we are now found. We know how to proceed. We know what it means to be truly and fully human now. We once were lost, but now science or technology or politics or education or the economy has found us. But what if there's another layer deeper? What if we could discover the value of what it might mean to be a person that is immeasurably and irreplaceably valuable to God and simultaneously lost? And what could it mean to be in relationship with someone who sees you as immeasurably valuable and who would do anything counting no cost to come after and find you and bring you home. This is what one of the biographies about Jesus' life is all about. One of Jesus' first followers, a historian and physician named Luke, tells a story, the story, about Jesus' life that we can kind of summarize in Jesus' own words. Jesus says, the Son of Man, one of Jesus' terms for himself, the Son of Man means the divine and human one. The whole reason that Jesus has come into the world is to seek and to save that which is lost. In Luke's gospel, his biography of Jesus' life, we can see this theme running throughout the whole of this, of his narrative about Jesus' life. To paraphrase uh, this, you know, many-chaptered book along the lines of another book written by a Jewish writer named Abraham Joshua Heschel, we could think of Luke's story of Jesus' life in, in, in this way, that it is the story of God's search for humanity. That in Jesus Christ, God has entered into the world and entered into the details and particularities of our life where we have gotten lost, where we have lost the plot, where we have lost hope, where we have lost function, where we have lost our humanity in order to bring us back home. And this story, these themes kind of crystallize in a chapter, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, which I think is the climax of this story. I think this is in clear terms what Jesus understands himself to be doing in our lives and in the world. And it's a story of lost things being found. Jesus tells three short stories about lost things being found. And the context, the setting, we read in verses 1 and 2, Luke 15, 1 and 2, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, to to set things up, on the one hand, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. And these are people that in, in broad strokes, stereotypes, are the immoral sinners. These are people who you would expect to in some way be lost, lost to themselves, lost to God, lost to others. But right before this, in chapter 14, Jesus has just told a story about a great large party, a celebration, in which the the friends and family of God are all invited, but all decline the invitation And don't come to the party. And so the host of the party says, go to the highways and byways and bring anyone and everyone in who will come. And so, this explains sort of Jesus' modus operandi. This is how Jesus moves and operates in the world. That people who we think in some ways were the least like Jesus, most liked Jesus. And they were drawn in toward him. But on the other hand, you've got people who are the religious, moral, ethical, upright, religious superstars, if you will. And they're all grumbling, complaining, posting on their social media, can you believe this Jesus guy? Because of who Jesus himself was associating with. They didn't like that these people like Jesus, And they didn't like that Jesus took issue with their approach to following God. And so Jesus, in in the tension of this dynamic, clears his throat throat and addresses the tension by telling three stories. And they all follow a particular flow. There's There's a pattern to them. And they all establish a relationship with someone and something of value. And then it addresses the lostness, the conflict, the tension, and the searching, an attempt to find some resolution. And then it climaxes with a finding and a celebration. And so the first story, the relationship and the value is the shepherd and the lost sheep. A shepherd has 99 sheep and discovers after, you know, doing the head count when they all get back on the bus at the end of the field trip that one is missing. And so the shepherd, in love, goes searching after the one who is lost and in some way is hurt, potentially. And there's oftentimes some some misunderstanding around this story that why would a shepherd who's got ninety-nine leave for the one? Doesn't that say, doesn't that discount the value of everyone who got it right? But in some ways, when the shepherd goes finding the one sheep, it communicates the value of each one of those 99. It says, if the shepherd would do that for that sheep, then in fact the shepherd would do that for me. Communicates the value of this thing that has been lost. And then the shepherd brings the sheep back, carrying it on his shoulders. And then he announces, Hey, come and join me in my celebration because I had 99 and one was lost, but I found the one and so come, let's have a party. And I was like, but all right, that sounds delightful. Any excuse for a party, we'll take it. And then Jesus continues with another story. And this one has to do with a woman who has ten coins, ten gold coins, and has lost one. And so she begins searching all over her house, under things, between the couch cushions, in the fridge, all of the places, retracing her steps to find the one gold coin. She only has ten and so she has lost one-tenth of her possible life savings. And quite hilariously, at least to me, uh, yesterday we had, uh, in my neighborhood we have block sales in the spring. And yesterday was, the, was our, our street hosted our block sale. And uh, we sold a a number of things, including uh, many of my almost four-year-old son Beckett's uh, old clothes and toys and things like that. And so he was very proudly at some point carrying around three quarters, 75 cents. Now, you have to understand, this is more money than he's ever had in his entire life. (laughs) He's carrying around three coins, he moves at one point and he drops one in the dirt and in the grass. Now, you have to understand, this is a third of his life savings. (laughs) And so we panic, and we start looking and searching, and I realize, oh my gosh, there's a woman searching for a coin. The bad news is coin has never been found. But the good news in the story is that this woman did find the coin. And she says, come and rejoice with me. Because that which I lost I have now found. So come and join my celebration. She throws a party. So you kind of see how this is flowing. And then we get to the third story. And the relationship of value is that of a father who has two sons. And they're both lost. Now this is the story that we commonly know as the prodigal son, singular. But Jesus, as we have followed these stories, Jesus, who is the most brilliant master teacher ever to live, has his audience right where they want, he wants them. Because Jesus has set up this entire thing to say, here's a relationship of value. Here's the conflict. That valuable thing has been lost. And what does that person who is responsible for that value do? They go searching and finding, and then they celebrate. And so, Jesus begins the story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son asked for his inheritance, which was to say to his father, I wish you were dead. Not a good beginning to a a relational story. So he, the father liquidates his assets, which would have been a profoundly shameful thing for him to do, given the cultural context. He distributes his, his entire life savings between his two sons. The older son gets two-thirds, and the younger son gets one-third, and he goes off into a foreign land, and he spends it all in ways that we kind of fill in the gaps as immoral and, and wild and reckless prodigal-type behavior. He comes to his senses at one point and he says, Okay, I'm going to return and go back to my father so that I can get a job from him, kind of reestablish my life and get moving back in the right direction. And so the son comes back, and while he was still a long way off, the father sitting on the porch who has been searching for his son, he's been looking for him, he's been hoping and praying and thinking that he would one day return, goes running down the driveway out to meet him, he grabs him in an embrace, he fully restores him back into the family, he gives him a robe and a ring and sandals, and it's this beautiful moment where, of, of reconciliation and restoration. And then there's another son, who hears about all of this that has happened. And the father has ordered that there would be a fattened calf because his son of his would be killed and a party would be thrown because this son of his that was once dead is now alive, who was once lost, is now found. And the older brother hears this and he's like Fuming. He is upset. And part of the reason why is his dad is spending his money without his consent. The father has given everything over. This older brother is now in charge of the house. He's in charge of the bank account, and his dad is spending his money And so when the party happens and and the father sees that his younger son is not in the party joining the celebration, he goes out to him, the elder brother. He says, will you come in and join me in my joy? And he says, you have never even given me a a cheeseburger party, a pizza party. You've never given me anything. And I've stayed here and I have slaved for you. And this Yehu comes home. He hasn't even barely said sorry yet, and you throw a party and invite the whole town. What's your deal? And he says again, this, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so Jesus sets up this dynamic between the younger brother and the older brother as sort of the hook, line, and sinker, directed not towards the sinners and the tax collectors, but against the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were grumbling about who Jesus was partying with as the pastor and writer Tim Keller puts it. You see, neither son loved the father for himself. They were both using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from God, either by breaking God's rules or by keeping them all diligently. It's a shocking message. Careful obedience to God's law may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God. You see, there are two ways that we can be lost. One looks like running away and the other looks like staying put and doing all of the right things and all of the right ways. Why? So that we can get from God what we think we deserve. This, in Jesus Mind, which is the mind of God, is what it means to be lost. And all of us are in this place of lostness, of separation, of distance, of disorientation from God. We just do it in different ways. But the good news invitation this morning is that your true value is found by admitting that you're lost. Your true value as a human being, your immeasurable worth, is found paradoxically by admitting that in one of two ways we are lost. And by admitting this loss, we reestablish to reorient ourselves to the God who is endlessly searching from us, for us, but who we consistently hide from. And this is the oldest story in the Bible. But this is not something that we simply do once and for all, admitting that we're lost. Typically, there is a high moment in The life of a Christian at conversion or at baptism where this confession, this conversion moment happens. And those are are real and important. And we have a baptism class that's going on right now exactly for that thing. And yet, there is more. This is a daily discipline that followers of Jesus engage in. And in the words of the great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, The hymn writer says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. You see this Luke 15 imagery. He to rescue me from danger of sin, death, and evil interposed came in between his precious blood. Then, oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let your goodness, like a fetter, it's like a ball and chain, (laughs) you can't move far out of the proximity (laughs) of grace, and why would you want to? Bind my wandering heart to you. How do we do this? How do we daily constrain ourselves? I have a couple of suggestions before we come to the communion table. So first, have you admitted to Jesus that you are lost and you need him to come and find you? Have you made this admission, this confession that you don't know where you are, you don't know how you got to where you got to, and you need him to come and search and find you? The good news is he's closer you think? Secondly, is there someone you've lost touch with? Is there someone you've lost touch with who the invitation from the Spirit of Jesus to you this morning is to go searching for and finding them, to reach out in some way? And then finally, is there someone whose value It is difficult for you to see. Like the religious people in this story who did not quite see the value of what Jesus was doing. Is there someone, a person, who it's difficult for you to see their value? And here's the invitation here. We begin to value what the people we value love. Love. I have searched high and low for things that are of no consequence to me except for the fact that my children love them and are looking for them. And so I have contorted myself under couches and all manner of places to find pacifiers and blankets and stuffed animals because they needed them. And in the same way, the invitation is for us to go after that which God loves and values. Every human life. The um, celebrated pastor, Eugene Peterson, uh, at his funeral, his son Leif, said that his dad, who preached countless sermons and wrote numerous books and even penned a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, his son said he only ever said one thing and repeated it ad nauseum. Leif said that he figured his father out while he was still a young junior hire. And the dots connected one night as his father came into his bedroom After he was in bed with the lights out, as he did every single night, and whispered into his ear the same prayer that he whispered into his ear every single night. And that prayer is that God loves you, God is on your side, God is coming after you, and God is relentless. And friends, this can move from feeling like a threat to feeling like a promise when we admit that we are lost. And it moves from a promise to a celebration when we come to this table where lost things find their way home. This celebration of death coming out of life, or of life coming out of death because of the grace of God.